Hey everybody, welcome to Licked and Loaded. I'm your host, Laura Desiree, and today we are stepping into some very vulnerable territory. We'll be talking with clinical psychologist and sex coach, the incredible Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee, all about how trauma we've experienced in our lifetime impacts and influences our sexuality our sexual desires, our sexual behaviors. We're going there today, people. So strap yourselves in and get ready for this one because here we go. my guest today on Licked and Loaded, Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee. Now, you are a clinical psychologist, a sex and intimacy coach, an author, a podcaster, a speaker, and the specialist therapist on the UK reality series, Open House, The Great Sex Experiment. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. My God, I have the longest list of titles now. It's scary. But it gives so many opportunities to go down different paths, and I'm tempted to go to all of them. Uh, but in your own words, doctor, let's hear about the work that you do. How would you describe your day to day? So I split my time um, between working with people who have experienced trauma from the kind of daily trauma to like PTSD level trauma um, to working with um individuals and couples who want to explore non-monogamy or having issues around non-monogamy or explore kink and BDSM or authority transfer-based relationships or have issues around that or having issues with their relationships and their sex lives to doing some groups around that to writing about all of this and writing erotica and podcasting and media stuff so it's um it's fun it's a lot it's varied I mean, inside of your head must be incredible. It must be so fascinating. Why is this your calling? Um, I mean, I think with trauma, it's that there, there still remains a prevailing belief that when you've experienced a trauma, that's sort of it. And you have carry those triggers for the rest of your life. Mm. Um, and that's rubbish. So um, for that, I want people to understand that they can get better and they can have life after the trauma that doesn't involve, involve just managing triggers, mm -hmm. but that is actually a life where that's in your past and not in your present. So that's that part. And for the relationship stuff, I mean, I'm, I'm queer, I'm polyamorous, I'm a leather woman. This is how I live my life. Um, it's an alternative to uh the more normative things of non-monogamy of monogamy and mm -hmm. um i have a brilliant life and it is about skills and i want people to know enough to choose and i think that a lot of times practitioners either have their own agenda and their soapbox mm. or they don't know enough about what's out there so that their clients end up limiting based on the fact that there's not enough information. I've been doing this for so long that for me, it's really about making people understand that you make the choices. Yeah. 
Yeah, the, the, the intersection that you specialize in is so uh, relatable. I think so many people live with questions and challenges in their sexual lives when they do live with trauma in, yeah. in their lifetime. And yet we look to treat it very isolated. If we have sexual issues, we have sexual issues. If we have trauma issues, we have trauma, but we don't blend them. Well, we don't look, we don't, we don't tend to look at people holistically. Um, I'm in the uh, fortunate position of having had a very thorough classical training in clinical psychology that prepared me to be able to take a holistic view on one hand, and then having trained as a coach, and that was a separate training, which gave me the opportunity to look at things from an, another direction. Um, and that allows me to look at the person in front of me and go, okay, I'm very pragmatic. So I've got lots of skills. I've been doing this for 35 years. It's a long time. I've had time to build up lots of different skills. Um, and I'll look at the person in front of me and go, okay, here's the person in front of me. What's going to work best for you? Even if that means I say, I'm not the one, right? I'm not the one. I'm going to send you to somebody else. I'm going to suggest you go look for this because I'm not the right person or what I'm doing isn't going to be right for you. Right. I was going to ask how how you make the approach when one size fits all does not fit for individuals looking to have an understanding of how to you know live their life with their lived experiences. I was going to say, how do you make that approach and decide whether it is someone that you'll proceed with versus, you know what, this is going to be better suited elsewhere? I mean, for me or for the client? For the client. Okay. That's what I thought. All right. So for the client, um, if you know what your issues are, some people don't. Hmm. So that's a different story. But if you know what you, your issues are, sit down and write some questions out for the therapist beforehand. Um, sometimes having someone trauma-informed is useful. Sometimes trauma-informed means I took a couple of courses, but I don't have a lot of experience. So there's a lot of platitudes we throw around. Hmm. So ask specific questions. What's your attitude towards the treatment of trauma? Do you believe that all you can do is help me manage my triggers? Do you believe that I can move past this? Um, do you work with methods that are specific to treatment of trauma? Uh, what are, you know, do you have training in sex and gender um, and particularly in diversity around that? Are, you know, are you willing, are you happy for me to be talking about these issues? and ask questions and watch their responses. Right. I love the idea of taking an inventory of it. I think that that's incredible in at least getting the the perimeter of what, you know, you want to know and what you want to uh I don't want to say solve or heal, but having an understanding of that and building that vocabulary so essential. I mean, put pen to paper. Like that's Absolutely. The thing is, you know, the thing is you you are interviewing this person as much as they are interviewing you. Mm -hmm. And you are always going to feel nervous at the beginning. So, you know, just because you don't feel fa fabulous about a person doesn't mean you they're the wrong person necessarily, because we all feel anxious unless you're experienced with therapy, going to therapy or coaching of any kind pr produces anxiety. So fine. So you might be anxious, but um, if you can put a little bit of that aside, then notice if it's a little anxiety because of the situation or you just don't feel comfortable with somebody 
And if you don't feel comfortable and you don't feel you ever will move on, right? Don't worry about what that person thinks, feels. If they're a professional, they're not going to care. You're just not the right person for me. Yeah. Yeah. Excuse me. So that's fine. Right. It's just not the right match. Um, but pay attention to what your gut is telling you about the situation. And then if you don't feel like you're getting decent answers, there are other people out there. Right. There are other people out there. So you need to feel comfortable and you need to feel the person has the expertise to work with you. Well, yeah, and the willing. A thousand percent. I, for, for people that are listening, saying, well, I don't know how my trauma might impact my sexual behaviors. I don't know if that's something that I can identify for myself. Are there ways that people can say, wow, I am affected uh, in my, my navigating of my sexual self. I am impacted by something I've experienced in my life. Well, I mean, I don't even think you need to know that. Uh, sex and sexuality are, are big parts of life. Right. And so if a therapist isn't willing to explore those areas, you don't want to see that therapist anyway, mm -mm, mm -mm, right? Mm -mm. When you go and you work on trauma, you're not working in isolation. I take a history so that I have the context, even when I'm coaching and I may not be looking much at your past, but I want to know what your context is because it's important to know what your context is if I'm going to work with you. And so I take a thorough history with people so that I have that sense. We may work on everything. We may not, you know, we may be only coming in to work on a couple of things, but I need to know what's there. Um, and so you don't have to know exactly how it's impacting, but you should be comfortable that this person's going to ask you about sex and they're going to be willing to talk about it if it's something that you feel a need to talk about. Specific desires. You know, we mm -hmm. live in a culture, we live in a culture that, yes, can can shame and condemn people for having certain desires that may be, say, off color or uh, not accepted by society. Uh, is there a time when a sexual desire or a kink or a fetish, is there a time when that is cause for concern for an individual to say, I should I should perhaps look into why I feel this way about this experience? In the first place, it's often very difficult to figure out why. Why is a really hard question to answer because a lot of these things are very nuanced and very complex. And often why doesn't matter. People come to me, oh, I want to know why I like BDSM. So my re response to that is, why do you care? What difference does it make? What difference does it make to you? Right. If this is something you're into, the chances are knowing why isn't going to change the fact that it's something that turns you on. So what are you going to do with that information? You're going to spend a lot of money with me trying to figure it out. So let's see where your money is best spent, because that's going to take longer, usually, not always, but usually. And we don't often get an answer that's nice and clear cut. Mm -mm. It isn't like... Um, it seems to be in 50 shades of gray, you know, oh, I was abused and that's why, or, you know, somebody spanked me when I was a kid. And so now I like spanking. Sometimes that's part of it. Sometimes there's nothing you can find. Mm -hmm. So the question is, when is it unhealthy? Well, if you're doing things to people without their consent, that's always a concern, right? That's not a kink or a fetish. That's a concern. Mm -hmm. 
So that's right there. One, doing things to people without their consent or who can't consent, you need to go get some help, period. Um, if you're fantasizing about it, but you're always get, you're, you're enacting it in a role play and you're always getting someone's consent, not a problem. But if you really just want to do things without getting the consent of others, and that's what you're doing, then you need help. Um, if you are impulsively putting yourself in situations that you know are dangerous without risk assessing, hmm. then you probably should get some help. Now, that's always a tough one because there are lots of people who like to edge play. I edge play. I enjoy that. But I'm a damn good risk assessor now. That doesn't mean I always get it right. So sometimes you end up in a situation that was more precarious than you wanted and something that turns out to be traumatic because you misjudged. That's one thing. That doesn't mean that I should go to a therapist to make me stop doing this, right? If you're impulsive about it, or if you're doing things because you're challenging the, the universe or God to kill you, and people do do that, then you need help. For listeners that are hearing the, the term edge play for the first time, can you give them a definition on what that means? Edge play is play that's risky, really risky. Spanking is not really risky, okay? You, it can, can be painful. Uh, you can end up with bruises. Um, but spanking isn't beating. So if somebody's spanking you with their hands, they are not going to break your bones unless they're, you know, the incredible Hulk and, you know, right. Um, but edge play is things like, um, using actual edges, you know, playing with knives or, um, breath play. So choking, um, doing things that potentially could cause serious physical damage and or permanent harm and or death. So one of the things that people, I can't believe how often people do this. Like, it's really popular to talk about choking. Like, that's the cool thing. You see, like, the preteens and the teenagers, you know, I'm going to put it up against the wall. There's no safe way to do that. <laughs> I must say that again. There is no safe way to engage in breath play, period. Wow. And and yet it's one of the top acts you see enacted in pornography, which we know is influential as all hell. Yep. <laughs> um, it, it's it's a popular occurrence. It's really hot. It's really hot, but it is unsafe. Even when you learn how to do it properly, it's unsafe. OK, it's just less unsafe when you know how to do it properly. Why is that? Because People are unpredictable and you don't know what somebody's blood vessels look like. You don't know if they have any anomalies, like for example, what there's uh, the circle of Willis or the blood vessels that feed the brain. And it's called the circle of Willis because it's a circle. There's a very common um, congenital anomaly where people are missing one branch of that circle. They live fine with the one branch gone but they have less blood vessels feeding their brain. Wow. So doing something like that can have a more negative impact on them because now you wouldn't know that unless somebody did an MRI scan of your head. Right. It's not something that, you know, routine that you can see unless they're looking in your skull. So people can go their whole lives and not know that they have this anomaly. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Some people 
have um, there's a there's a vasovagal response that can happen when you um, hit the um, carotid. Yeah. Some people will pass out immediately. Other people, their heart will stop, and that's it. And that's, you either do not. It's Russian roulette. Yeah, it is absolutely Russian roulette. Which isn't to say I've never done this, but I don't do it now. Um, and it's because we sat down and had a conversation one day about the fact that. Um, so I'm talking doing it consensually. I had it done to me non-consensually. I actually did die. Came back, um, came back to life with the guy pounding on my chest and giving me mouth, mouth to mouth because I had stopped breathing. My heart had stopped. Um, and it took, I guess it took a while before he actually got everything going again. Oh my gosh. So, and that, but that was non-consensually, right? Right. But consensually with somebody who actually knew what they were doing, I did it a couple more times. And then my husband and I sat down and he wasn't my husband then, but yeah, still my partner sat down and had the conversation about, is this a risk we want to take? Right. And in the end, it was like, no, it's not a risk we want to take because there are too many variables yeah. that could go wrong. So the person that actually choked me non-consensually was not intending on killing me. Like no. that's not, that wasn't the goal. And he, wow. I mean, you know, it, the, the goal was to petrify me. The goal was to enjoy what he was doing, which was raping me at the time. Right. That was the goal. It wasn't to kill me. And he, he was petrified when he realized what he'd done um, because it's a whole different scene. If you have a body to deal with than it is right. You know, right. like, but he was um, the one that also brought you back. Yeah. Yeah, because he was petrified. He didn't, right. you know, he didn't want a murder charge. No. Oh and he didn't goodness. want anything to end that quickly either. I mean, he he was an evil bastard um, <sighs> but and, and went to jail. So, you know, there it is. Um, but that was like accidental. Yeah. And he was an experienced player. But it's unpredictable. And that's it's what I'm saying. It's unpredictable. <laughs> so a lot of people do um, autoerotic expectations asphyxiation so that's where they do it themselves they cut the blood supply they release the blood supply they cut the blood supply they release the blood supply again unpredictable there are a whole bunch of deaths every year due to exactly that and so this is not just breath play which is where you're crushing a windpipe or blood play, which is where you're doing the blood vessels, either mm -hmm. one, right? Some blood play is better and, and you know lots of sex educators who are into kink, will talk about um, the different ways that you can simulate without actually putting pressure, right? And, you know, keep the vibe, but you're not actually putting actual pressure. So you put pressure here where you're not, mm -hmm. right? There's, you're not grabbing any blood vessels or you put pressure here where, again, where you're not, you know, you're forcing somebody, right. Right? right? Or here, other ways of simulating stuff without actually doing something that you, where you're risking there's there's alternatives you know that's the reality right. is that there's alternatives to that kind of play but still give a, a similar effect it gives a similar effect but not the same because for a lot of people with breath play and blood play the passing out is part of the the cool yes. thing right you might have that work and be you might be fine six seven eight times the ninth time you're gone wow so or, that's someone's so thing what are their options? Well, if that's your thing, then you have to understand the risk. Like, I won't tell anybody, don't do this, right? 
right? I'm not telling you, you can't have this kink. What I'm telling you is you need the knowledge and the information to make an adequate risk assessment. When we engage in a lot of kinks, there are all sorts of kinks we engage in that are risky. And we need to be grown and risk assess. You know, when I let somebody take implements and, and really beat me, for example, if you beat punch deeply, you can create problems with deep bruising. Yeah. You know, you can create serious problems with deep bruising. You can cause deep bleeds where people are slowly bleeding out and you don't know. This is not safe. I'm not trying to scare people. I want them to take that in and then make decisions. It's also not safe to cross the road half the time. Mm. (laughs) Right? It's not safe to drive a car. Like safe meaning there is no risk. Okay? Everything we do has a risk. The idea is to understand that and risk assess for yourself. That's That's all. That's the responsibility. That's the responsibility. That's That's the responsibility for you and for your partners that you make an adequate risk assessment. So I'm not trying to put people off being engaging in kink. I'm asking people and or any relationship for that matter. Sex is a risk. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and in the United States, sex is becoming a bigger risk than any of this other stuff. Oh my gosh, how absolutely timely. I mean, we're recording this on uh, uh, May the 4th right now, people. So we're talking, we've been 24 hours with this news. This is this is an incredible, stressful time to be in the country of America. Speaking of kink in particular, being the, the specialist that you are, being the doctor that you are, what are your thoughts on trauma play? Is this a path to healing? Is this something that needs to be approached with um, any any kind of safety measures for not just the physicality, but the mental state of the individual that wants to engage in play that maybe echoes or repeats the trauma they've experienced in life? So here's the thing. Um, reenacting your trauma in and of itself is not going to, it's not going to heal you 98% of the time. Okay. When I take somebody through a trauma and I'm not doing play with them, we're talking, we're envisioning, but mm-hmm. right. I want to be clear about that. When I take them deep into a trauma, I'm doing it in a controlled fashion. I am standing outside and holding the space in a very particular way. A dominant cannot hold that space for you um, easily. Hmm. If what gets them off is being a dom- is being dominant and being a sadist, you activate them too much. They're not holding that neutral space, ooh, ooh, ooh. right? And they're not meaning to do anything wrong. It's just they're turned on. That's what they're doing, right? Oh. That's what they're there. So unless you're doing this with someone, there are some sex workers who advertise doing this. My problem with them is they don't have the psychological background to understand what to do if things get out of hand or if it doesn't, what they're doing doesn't work. What preparation someone actually needs to do this. Hiring them is not preparation enough. So if they're working, there are some people who work in conjunction with specialist therapists and that works well in some cases, but again, it's not the whole of the therapy. It's not like you go in and you go, okay, you know, and we're going to reenact this a few times and then boom, we're done. Exactly. Right. It doesn't work that way. 
um, even though it doesn't have to take millions and millions of hours to work through the trauma. It just usually doesn't work that way. There needs to be a significant prep work. And reenacting is just that. It's reenacting that the, yeah. you don't you don't have the same triggers in it. It's not that person is not the person that traumatized you. Where reenactment is good is a change the outcome kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So once you've gotten rid of the specific triggers around the individual, right? And around um, the actual specific event, but you're still afraid to go back out into doing things, then a reenactment is great because what you're doing is you're enacting it in a safe space with somebody who's safe. Right, right, right. right. But that's not going to process the trauma. All, all on its own. It just doesn't, it just doesn't work. Um, it can be therapeutic and helpful, but on its own is not going to heal it. So my advice is go see somebody who knows what the fuck they're doing, who is kink friendly or kink knowledgeable. I'm kink knowledgeable because I'm kinky and I do this stuff personally. So yeah. see somebody who is not only a therapist, but knowledgeable and talk with them about the different ways to resolve trauma, because it is true that often talking on its own will do a lot, but it won't do all of it because certain things are stored in the body, because mm -hmm. you know certain triggers aren't accessible just by envisioning, you know, triggers will come up by doing, emotional triggers will get ticked off, that it's hard to tip off in a session. So mm -hmm. physically active things can be an, an amazing part of treatment. Absolutely. Wow. But you need your treatment run by somebody who actually knows what they're doing and can hold the space, the whole space, the whole, whole space. Exactly. And, 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 and be present for what is happening in that moment and what the individual looking to experience the trauma, what they're doing this for. And be able to move it on. Like, because, right. you know, it's all well and good when things are easy and sometimes they are, but a lot of times things are complex and, the right move at the right time will mean that everything moves along fine. The wrong move, move will mean that it gets sticky and complicated and ends yeah. up re-traumatizing somebody. And your ability to see that and know what is the most appropriate thing to do in a given situation or, or the palette of appropriate things you can choose from in a given situation in part has to do with your level of knowledge in part is your level of experience and in part is your ability to be empathic but detached in the space empathic so, but detached yes right. so i i really give a shit about what's happening to you and i can feel what's happening to you but i know it's not happening to me it doesn't activate me it's not triggering me and i'm not turned on by it because that's not what I'm there for. What I'm right. there for is to facilitate your healing. Right. So I don't do that with people. I actually don't go in and, and, and I'm, first of all, I'm not dominant. So from that point of view, it, it would be difficult for me to facilitate something like that, but it's outside my, my uh, wheelhouse to go in and do that with people, but I will coordinate with somebody, mm -hmm. you know, I'm happy to coordinate with somebody and I will create a healing space. And if and be in the next room or be present at certain parts if it's necessary, you know I'm I'm happy to do that, but I'm not actually going to do the physical stuff. That's just not my thing. Um, the, yeah. the concept, the concept of, or I'm going to call it the reality of healing 
through play and the healing qualities of kink and BDSM, this is a hard thing for a lot of society to wrap their heads around, to understand that there is healing through it. So how, how would you put that to words in your expert way of, of how there can be a beautiful uh, elevation of one's life and their life quality by experiencing some of these, these sexual encounters? I mean, I think, you know, it, it, I think it depends on the person. Um, if you are somebody who has a kink, then engaging in your kink is healing, right? Mm -hmm. You know, play, play in and of itself, any kind of play um, has the potential to be healing because it's, um, it's, there's a joy involved in play um, and a, a freedom involved in play that allows us to be present and in a flow which is healing. I mean, usually when people are um, traumatized or stuck in things or unwell, there's, I look at it like they're stuck, right? There there's the, the movement is being dis disrupted. Say somebody's a big worrier, then in their mind, they're like this, you know, you know, it's just like this and like, what if this, and what if that, and what if this, and what if that, right? And what play does is take you out of that and puts you in the present. And that play could be like, you know, riding a bike or um or skateboarding really well or anything that but it's got to be it's got to be all encompassing right whatever the play is you know swimming in the channel where it's freezing whatever it is that you enjoy um and so with kink same thing so it's all encompassing so it takes you out of this your head and brings you into the present experiencing so that in and of itself is is therapeutic um there's another thing though about pain um, and um, I always find this a fascinating one. Anytime that we're able to actually get our bodies to produce the chemicals that make us feel good and the healing chemicals, so endorphins and things like that, um, is a better option than drugs. Mm -hmm. which isn't to say there's no place for pain medication and things like that. God knows I would never say that. I take it. I've got, you know, I've got autoimmune disease and I take a lot of different medications for different things, but the body's own natural systems can be amazing. And one of the ways of getting somebody who's in pain, getting their system to kick in is to cause them more, more and specific pain. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when the system is stuck, and I don't have a medical way to explain it, I know there is one, I could look it up, but sometimes when the system is stuck, it seems that if you go about creating it in a deliberate manner, you can unstick the system. And so you can move somebody who's been in chronic pain by creating more pain out of chronic pain and into a, a, a remission or a relative pain-free state, in certain conditions, there are some conditions where that's just not possible, but in certain conditions. Um, ah. So yeah, it can be pretty amazing. And, and, and of course, you and I spoke uh, while not recording that this was the case of artist Bob Flanagan, the super Absolutely. masochist, right? Like this was the entire message in his life's art and work and, and the, the pain that he sought out. So if listeners of this podcast have heard his name come up before, especially with speaking with some dominatrixes, we've definitely brought his name up because I believe his story is so valuable. Um, 
you and I also talked last time and I want to bring it up once more here. I think a lot of people that do live with trauma are constantly asking themselves, when am I done? When am I done the work? When is the processing complete? At what point do I graduate from this point in my life and get to live trauma free? Is that a reality for us? Yeah. Do we, do we graduate? Yeah, we can, but you, you've got to have the right treatment. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's definitely a treatment thing that doesn't happen on its own. If you're really living with trauma and certain life things you can process yourself. It may just take a while. Um, it's easier when you have treatment. The reason is because, you know, we know how to structure the processing to make it go faster. Right. So, yeah. you know, it, uh, sometimes I wonder why people are so anti um, getting professional help with stuff. Because yes, sometimes you can do it yourself, but it takes 10 times longer. So why would you want to do that to yourself? Don't know, but that's what people do. Um, but there's a lot of prejudice. There's a lot of attitude that, you know, um, once you've had a big trauma, then you have to learn to manage your, your triggers and you learn to live with it. And it's just bullshit. There are methods of working that will actually heal the trauma so that the trauma is in the past. That does not mean that you no longer remember it happened right? It just means that you no longer have activated emotions when you think about it and you no longer think about it for no reason or because, you know, a trigger went by. And I always ask people to think about something from their childhood that caused a lot of anxiety then, but, but now you look back on and you think, wow. Yeah. Okay. I was really anxious about that. Right. Um, and when you look back on it now, you don't feel the anxiety because it's in the past. It's over and done with. You remember how bad it felt, but you're like, there's no emotion when you're doing that. And you might go, oh, I learned a lesson from that. And I did this. Or you might go, that was just a shitty time. I'm so glad it's over. And that's it. There's no reason why trauma can't be that way. Right. It, but it is about getting the right treatment. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, my little quick and dirty way of knowing how, when you, you know, how, you know, when something's done, this is my quick and dirty way of knowing when something's done. It's when you no longer wish it didn't happen. If, if you're thinking about something with regret, with upset, like, oh my God, my life would be so different if that didn't happen to me. It's probably not finished. Yeah. What a great way to understand it as well. What a great way for people that are searching for whether or not this is something they can overcome in life. What a beautiful way of putting it. Oh, thank you. And thank you. For me, it's just really straightforward. And I, and people are like, well, what do you know? And I, I mean, I know as an expert, but I also know because I've been through it and like I, I said earlier, you know, and like, I just kind of slid by, you know, when he, when this guy killed me accidentally. Right. You know, it's just like slides by, but that was part of, um, of, of a five day intense trauma. And, um, and that gave me post-traumatic stress disorder. I had other things happen in my life, but that was probably the most major. Um, and, and then involved a trial and putting a guy in prison and, you know, on and on. And um, that was the thing that when I found the right treatment, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't believe I was ever going to be okay. And then I found the right treatment and I did intensive treatment for a week. So that meant that I went every day and we did four to six hours of work a day. So I went for five days every day, um, four to six hours of work. And at the end of that, I had no symptoms. And that was in 1989. And I haven't had symptoms since. Wow. Can, so can we're I in 2022. What, what, the work, what, the, what that work is? 
So I did traumatic incident reduction, which is a treatment method that I co-authored a book on since and that I actually do with people. That's the method I used. Um, I love it. It's great. Uh, there are other methods that are really useful as well because I did some research where I compared methods. So one of the other methods that can be incredibly amazing is, is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, otherwise known as EMDR. Those are kind of the two um, ones that have the most, um, in my opinion, um, have the, you know, the, that work the best. Um, and there are other methods as well. There are newer things coming out where people are experimenting with this or that. There are a lot of physiological and body treatments. Um, there's one TRT, which is all about movement and stuff. That's great. But in my mm. experience with clients, that only, that teaches you to manage triggers in the end. It doesn't get rid of triggers. Um, what I will say to people is there's no way out but through. Hmm. You have to be willing to fully contact it and stay there until it's processed. And what people tend to do is they come to it. It's so painful. They pull away. They shut exactly. it down. Right. Exactly. And then they come to it. They come to it again. They come do this. It's so painful. And they shut it down. And that means, you know, and they have some weird idea that they're actually doing pieces of it. They're not. Right. No, they're still all carrying it with them. Yeah. And all you're doing is re-traumatizing. So, I mean, I don't work with people when I'm doing trauma work, no matter what method I'm using, I don't use a, a, a standard 50 minute hour because anxiety is a bell curve. So it rises, it rises, it hits a peak. It can't stay there forever. At some point it drops. So when you end a session, when it's up there, you re-traumatize people. When you end a session at the top, so they came in down here and then you make it worse. And then you go, okay, I'll see you next week. You've re-traumatized the person. Oh. So I'm not ending a session until we're at least at the same place where they came in or it's dropped, preferably it's dropped lower, right? So wow. you, there are things you can look for. The way that I work, I'm looking for specific things that tell me that I can stop now. So sometimes the session's 20 minutes and sometimes the session is two and a half hours and you pay for the time you're with me. So even if I set aside two hours because I thought it might be a long session and you only spent 20 minutes with me, well then, uh, you know, I tick off 20 minutes worth of your time that you've prepaid, right? Because that's how it works, that's, right? That's, it's very similar to the aftercare that we see in kink and, you know, the, the responsibility of, say, a professional dominatrix or anyone in the dominant role. I'm telling them it's their responsibility to be there for the aftercare after a scene, that subspace and return, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean not everybody pays attention to that. Hmm. Um, I think it's worth your while to do that. You'll, you'll have repeat repeat business. If you do that, if you're willing to do that, you'll get much more repeat business because what you're doing is you're, you're making sure that when your um, charge goes out in the world, that they're not going to end up falling over and breaking a leg because they're so high, they weren't touching the ground or um, they're going to get robbed in the street because they're so out of it. Right. You know, there are like lots of professional um, sex workers are like, yeah, I don't want to deal with that. And that's mm -hmm. fair enough, but it's worth it. If you do, build a little of that time in if you're raising them up. It's different when it's just straight sex work, right? Right, right. Just, you know, recovery time is much faster. 
But if you're going to do it, something where you're really, you know, taking them out of themselves and you're like putting them into some sort of subspace and they're high as a kite, then, you know, it, it's worth your while to spend the time. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, some, I, I could literally go on with you for hours on this and we didn't even get to open house, the great sex experiment, but this is My. an amazing series that is now airing on UK TV. What's the network? We're on channel four in the United Kingdom. Yeah. Channel network four. TV. Yep. Network oh, TV. Wow. And as a summary for listeners, this is a truly groundbreaking show. Would you mind giving us the uh, the background on it? Yeah, so um, the show is a show where we invite couples who want to open their relationships up to come to this retreat where there are willing um, and adventurous singles with whom they can do various things. And I'm there to guide them through it. It is a cut down version of a retreat that I do. Um, with a bit more play than I would normally do just because, you know, this is television. Um, And um, so they come along, I meet with them. We find out what it is they want. We prescribe various exercises to help them um, loosen up and various things to try and make the fantasy come true. And then the following day I meet with them again. And if there's been a disaster, we deal with the disaster. We help them bone up on their skills and um, some of them I, um, I've met with, a, you know, had a few days where they've seen me because they've gone and done different things and then off they go into the world. So it's um, it's a lot of fun. It's a great it's a great to give people a safe environment in which to try this. I mean, usually when people try this in the world, you know, first of all, they don't know who it is that they're having sex with and opening up with. You know, they, they don't know um, what the person's motivation is. They don't know um, if they have any STDs and, uh, and we can't account for everybody's motivation, but, you know, they do tests. So, you know, that, that the people that you're doing this with aren't going to give you an STD um, right. and there's support, which you don't usually have in the real world. No. So it's a nice way to kind of explore, you know, oh, I don't think I'll be jealous. I'm going to be absolutely fine. And then the next thing you know, like you're screaming jealous. And so, you know, the next morning it's like, oh my God, oh my God, what do I do about this? Okay. Let's deal with this. Let's see where this came from. Um, So it's really, it's really a lot of fun. So it was six episodes. Friday night is the last episode. Um, I'm hoping we're going to have season two, but I don't know yet. Um, But I'm hoping we're going to have season two. I'm also hoping it's going to make its way over to the U S and then if it does that, I'll be able to come and promote, you know, like it'll come over on syndication first and I'll be able to come and promote it over there um, because so many people in the U.S. have asked to see it. And, you know, it's, oh, yeah. it's just, it, you know how it is with network television at the beginning, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and, and I'm drooling to see this thing. I am so desperate to see this thing because I think we are at a very exciting time in the conversations around sexuality that we're actually having now as opposed yeah. to privately experiencing and then trying to manage all of our reactions and expectations. I mean, this is an incredible project. So people, please do uh, seek out Open House, The Great Sex Experiment, where you can and keep those fingers crossed that it'll make its way over to our American channels. Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee, thank you for your access you've granted us today. Thank you for the vulnerability and of course, all of your expertise, your philosophy and your worldly perspective. Thank you. 
Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And, and where can people get in touch with you and learn more about your work? So um, DrLaurieBethBisbee.com is my main website. And there's all sorts of info there. Um, I'm on Instagram. It's at Dr. Bisbee, B-I-S-B-E-Y. And Twitter is the same. TikTok, it's LaurieBethUK. And Facebook, it is Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee. I'm easiest to catch on Instagram and TikTok because I spend more time there than anywhere else. Um, as far as social media is concerned, just because, you know, videos are fun. Um, yeah. I, and Twitter is fun, but 140 characters gets old pretty quick. Oh, tell um, me about it. Yeah. So, I mean, those are the easiest ways to reach me. I've got email. If you want to do, um, you know, if you want to kind of have the experience of one intense session to break through an issue, I do a two hour laser coaching thing that um, you can book from my Instagram profile. And you can also book a half an hour with me from my Instagram profile to figure out what else, what else and where you want to go. Um, and I do work with people intensively the same way that I was worked with sometimes. And so it's, it, it is an option other than just weekly work to actually decide that what you want to do is go in and change the rest of your life. Oh, I, I'm so excited for everyone listening and watching right now. I, I hope that this has brought some hope, some insight, and some options to all of you. Everyone, this has been another episode of Licked and Loaded, a CAM4 podcast. I'm Laura Desiree, and we will see you next time. Make sure you like, favorite, and subscribe to this channel. Bye! <laughs>